greetings especially to you mothers today. Wish you a happy Mother's Day. We trust your time today with the family will be blessed. Just a reminder that there'll be no evening service this evening, so you'll have the time with your family. We do not always take time away from our regular preaching schedule to address a Mother's Day theme when Mother's Day comes along, Uh, but once in a while we do, and today uh, we will look at a subject that is home-related in honor of Mother's Day. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and then when you have that, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Actually, we will begin at the end of of chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1. For the sake of time, we will highlight several verses in chapter 2 as well. There are uh, kids' notes in the, in the bulletin if you would like to follow along, kids. Uh, questions to answer as you follow along with the message today. The title of the message is The Origin and Meaning of Marriage or Marriage, Its Original Ideal. Marriage, Its Original Ideal. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then down to chapter 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. Skip down, if you will, to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord formed, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the, Lord God, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And you are familiar, of course, with the events then of chapter 3, with the temptation and the fall and the consequences of that. If you will then turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'll begin reading with verse 22. And if you will, uh, keep an eye open especially for uh, quotations or allusions back to the Genesis account that we've just read. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your great mercy and your great wisdom in establishing the home as you have. What a mark of your kindness What a mark of your wisdom to make for us this context in which we receive life's highest blessings. And as we look this morning into the subject of marriage, as we examine its original ideal, we ask for those of us who are married that you will help us to learn by it, be shaped by it, so that both we may honor you with our marriages and that we ourselves may find all of the blessing that is intended for us in it. Send your spirit, we pray. Open your word to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The events of Genesis chapter 1, I'm sure, are familiar to you as... Moses records for us the six days of creation when God comes and creates in order to establish the world as we know it. 
we have the climax of the creation account, of course, coming in day seven, which is in our, uh, as our chapters are divided, chapter two, verses one to three, the seventh day is the, the climax of the creation account, which is the record of God resting. But the climax of creation itself is found in day six, and that is in the creation of man, who is made in God's image, male and female, to rule over the earth, the king of creation, to image God over the world and to exercise his rule, his dominion over the entire earth. That's chapter one. When we come to chapter two, remember now in chapter one, the account climaxing in day six in the creation of humanity. Chapter two now is like a zoom lens coming back to, to day six in the creation of man and woman. And here we have then the responsibilities that are given to man. We have the institution of marriage. And in the institution of marriage in chapter 2, we have marriage presented to us in its original ideal. And that's what I want to stress this morning. Now I'm going to make, for the message this morning, just make seven observations about marriage. Now don't let seven worry you. It won't take that long. The first five I'll go through in just two, three minutes. Those last two, numbers six and seven, you might worry about that because that may take a while to unpack. But that's what we'll do this morning. Just some observations about marriage in its original intent and its original ideal. Number one, marriage is not a human or a societal invention. Marriage is not a human or a societal invention. It's worth mentioning because we are told that today, that as society evolved, we developed this idea of marriage. But we find here that creation was actually God's idea, and it was God's idea from the beginning. It is what we call a creation ordinance. It was God's intention for humanity from the very outset. It was not an afterthought. It was not a mere societal convenience. But God created marriage. It is his intent for humanity from the beginning. Number two, marriage is therefore good. Marriage is therefore good. It is created by God himself. It is his purpose for humanity. This is why why humanity is created, male and female, and not unisex. It's not less holy to be married, as some the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church have, have taught, and this is why priests can't marry and so on. It is not less holy to be married. In fact, marriage is honorable. The author to the book of Hebrews tells us, marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. This is a good institution that God has made, and he has made it for our pleasure and for our happiness. Number three, marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Now, this ought to be, oh yeah, duh, kind of a statement. But in our society, the things you have to clarify, I think in the, in the kids' notes I have here a question, what is marriage? Here's what is marriage. Marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Now, this lies just on the surface of the text of Genesis. We're created male and female, and the first marriage, the first home, is of a man and a woman. In fact, I'm not sure, but there might even be a hint of that in the language of verse 22, where it says that God took a rib from Adam's side, and with that rib, he 
made a woman. The verb there, made, is kind of a, a tricky thing to translate because actually the word is built, assembled, has the idea of planned architecture. And I don't know what all lies behind that, but it has, I, I would imagine, something to do with her loveliness and especially her compatibility to man. Again, not unisex, but marriage is a union between a man and a woman. That's what it is from the beginning. Number four, marriage is to be a union of one man and one woman. Again, this just lies on the surface of the text. God, God's creation ideal for marriage is plainly put up for us, not one man and multiple wives, not one wife and multiple husbands, one man, one woman is God's ideal for marriage. Number five, one purpose for marriage. And note that I say one purpose, not the only purpose and not yet the main purpose. But one purpose, one important purpose for marriage is to have children. We have that in chapter 1, verse 28. God brought them together and blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Now, this is not to say that this side of the fall, particularly, there may be reasons not to have children, sometimes physical reasons, sometimes other kinds of reasons. There are exceptions to this, of course. But this is the norm. Universally, this is the norm. And God's intention for marriage is for procreation. One purpose of marriage is to have children. Now number six, and here we will take a little bit longer. The first purpose of marriage. Before I finish that, I'm going to let you think about it. What is the first purpose of marriage? The first purpose of marriage is companionship. The first purpose of marriage is companionship. Now, this is stressed for us several ways in this passage. Throughout chapter 1, we read that recurring refrain, and God saw that it was good, 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 and God saw that it was very good. And we no sooner get through with all of that, and we get into chapter 2 and verse 18, and we read, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, there are a couple of ways to say not good. There are ways to do it in English. There are ways to do it in Hebrew as well. And one of them, you could just say it's lacking good. But the statement here is the more direct way. It is not good. That is to say, it's bad. It is not good for man to be alone. God was never alone throughout all eternity. God was in fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And there's the fellowship of the eternal triune God in perfect satisfaction and the fellowship of Father and Son and Spirit. And now that he has created his image bearers, he sees it is not good for man to be alone either. And he wants for man who reflects his image to experience the kind of fellowship that God himself enjoys among Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Now, there are other purposes for marriage beyond companionship, as I've mentioned already, to have children, to provide environments that's conducive for raising children in the ways of the Lord, to provide a context for the right use of physical passions that God has created, which themselves are good, but to give the right context for those and for their happy and pleasurable expression. And in fact, those physical relations themselves are one aspect and a very important aspect of the companionship that God has given in marriage. But the first purpose of marriage, first purpose of marriage is companionship. It is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable to him. Now that's fascinating to me in one respect here because Adam, in one respect, was not alone. He had God. He was in fellowship with God. And you think, what more could you want? But God looks at it and sees that man is not God. And man needs a companion on his own level. Someone who, with whom he can correspond himself on deep levels as a, as a creature of God. As God's image bearers. He needs a companion. He needs a soulmate. And there's a sense in which God sees him as not yet complete with just man. He needs a woman to complement, to finish. It's not good for man to be alone. The narrative presses this actually in a couple of ways. That, first of all, it's not good for man to be alone. Let's make a woman for him. But it presses this in another way. In verses 18 and 18 through 20, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man, see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Adam, name all the animals. Okay, what's the turn in the narrative there? You see that? It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper, someone suitable to him, a helpmeet. And so God brings all the animals past. And Adam is to name them, and Adam names all of the animals. And at the end of it all, we read in verse 20, the end of verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. That is, Adam recognizes his aloneness, that he needs a companion, and all the animals are brought past him, and he names them. And after all is said and done, Adam realizes that a dog is not really man's best friend. (laughs) He He needs a woman. And that's the conclusion it comes to in verse 20. God was wisely preparing Adam's heart for a wife. And after all of this exercise, dominion, naming the animals, he's still alone. And he still doesn't have someone who can really correspond to him. Someone he can identify with, no real soulmate. He's not God, but neither is he an animal. He's a man created in God's image, reflecting God himself. And he needs a companion on that level one with whom he can identify. Put simply, man needs a woman.
Men, we might as well admit it, despite the macho independence attitude that we like to have, especially the side of the fall, and again, there are exceptions to it. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, there's even a gift of celibacy. But the universal norm, the universal experience is that man needs a woman. And so in verses 21 and 22, God causes Adam to fall asleep into a deep sleep. And while he's asleep, he takes out a rib, closes the flesh back up behind it. And with that rib, he builds a woman. And then verse 23, the man sees her and says, yeah, that'll do just fine. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is bone of my bone. This is, this is what I wanted. A soulmate, someone on my level, someone just like me. I want someone that I can correspond to. And so I'll call her Isha because she's taken out of Ish. I told my wife the Hebrew last night. She said, so man is Ish? I said, yeah. She said, that's pretty funny. <laughs> but just like in English, in the Hebrew as well, there's a, there's a play on the word. She shall be called Isha because she's taken from Ish. She'll be called woman because she's taken from man. She, she's one of me. She's my other self. This is, this is what I've been wanting, someone on my level. And although verse 23 might read as very pedantic, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I'll call her a woman because she's taken from... The, the sense, I think, the, 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 the flavor here, the atmosphere is, is one of excitement, one of joy. That finally, at last, now I have someone that corresponds to me. And Adam's aloneness is finally answered. He has a companion, just what he needed. Man is no longer alone. He has someone that he can relate to, someone with whom he can share on the deepest level, someone who has, with whom he has perfect correspondence, both body and soul. The... 18th century Bible commentator Matthew Henry, which many of you have heard of, many of you have read, I'm sure, has a famous comment here that I think is, is fascinating. Commenting on this verse, he says that the woman was made out of the rib of the side of Adam. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Now you might think maybe that symbolism is a bit overplayed. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. But I think he's on to something, and I think it is insightful. The Apostle Paul, for example, as we'll see in just a minute, says that there is intention even in the order in which God creates man and woman and from whom the, the one comes from the other. All of that is intended as God's declaration of meaningfulness with regard to the marriage relationship itself. And so I think Matthew Henry is really onto something there, and it's really a very a beautiful picture of God and of his new creation here. God carefully and with tender concern providing for the happiness of his creation 
caring for us in a way to supply our deepest needs and each the man and the woman perfectly suited for the other, perfectly corresponding to the other, body and soul, and then Adam delighting in what God had graciously provided. At last he has a companion. And so in verse 24, Moses adds his interpretive comment, which is very important. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, too, shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Do you see the math here? One plus one equals one. Isn't that it? They, the two of them, shall become one flesh. Paul picks this up, and you might have noticed that, and we read through Ephesians chapter 5 earlier. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. You love your wife as you love yourself. Love your wife as you love your own body. That, that's the symbolism here. She's you. She's, she's your other self, your, your other you. In marriage, this companionship runs deep. And in fact, the Apostle Paul, I'm sure you noticed this in Ephesians 5 as we're reading through, quotes verse 24 here from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And then he adds his own interpretive comment and says, this mystery is profound. These two shall become one. One plus one equals one. This mystery is profound. And it is. There's no relationship in the world like that of a husband and a wife. You've got parents and children, you've got brothers and sisters, you've got your buddies and your BFFs. But there's nothing like the relationship, particularly in a good marriage. There's nothing like the oneness, the companionship, and the mutual understanding of husband and wife. There's a deep sense, a profound sense, in which the two really become one. And it's a fascinating thing. I don't know if you've ever noticed it that way, but there's, especially in a good marriage, but in, in, in almost any marriage, there's a, there's a relationship that's just like, not like anything else. There's an understanding, a relationship, a, a, a fellowship with one another that runs deep. My dad used to say that in a good marriage, husband and wife begin to look like each other. <laughs> I think he's on to something. God forbid that Kim should look like Claire. <laughs> or that Kristen should look like Joe. We don't want that. But you see, he's on to something. There is something about a good marriage that they, they click. They're in sync. And so much so that they begin to reflect one another. And when you begin to know them well, somehow you just can't think of the one without thinking of the other. There's such a reflection and a correspondence and a deep companionship that becomes so evident in their relationship. Everybody knows them, knows it. That's its created ideal. That's what it's for. 
Marriage is for companionship. It is not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable to him, one on his level that perfectly corresponds, body and soul. And so it is God's intention that a man leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. First purpose of marriage is companionship. It's really a beautiful thing to see. Did you know that the first purpose of marriage is companionship? You might not have thought of it in exactly those terms. You might not have recognized that that was a biblical teaching. But I suspect that every one of us who has been married knows that companionship is the first purpose of marriage. At some level, we know that. We know it because that's why we want to marry. Sure, some people have wanted to marry for the money or the prestige or marry for sex. But deep down, universally, the norm is we marry for companionship. That's what we want. And any failed marriage, any faltering marriage, hurts on exactly this scale. I've lost companionship. Now, I have much more to say about companionship, but before we develop that, we have to look at the seventh observation from this account in Genesis, and that is, and I'm going to say this several different ways. Number, number seven, the woman was created for the man. The woman was created for the man. Or, we can say it this way, the wife was created for the husband. Her purpose was wrapped up with his Or we could say it this way, her purpose was him. Her reason for being was her husband. And all of that is to say, I'll say it here one other way, all of that is to say that within this companionship, and let me stress, within this companionship of equals, within this companionship of equals, There are distinctive roles. Now this whole question of the structure of leadership in the home, of course, is a huge issue in our society today. The biblical teaching on it is is pretty clear. It may be the point after the fall in Genesis 3.16, your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. That may well point to the fact that this this battle of the sexes and the one trying to rule over the other, but ultimately the, the, the husband having the authority. That may well be the intent there. And of course, in Ephesians chapter 5, the New Testament makes it very explicit. Wives, submit to your husbands, reverence your husbands, and so on. But what I want to stress here is that the Genesis narrative itself, the creation narrative itself, stresses this matter of structures in the home in several different ways. Number one, man was created first. Well, you think, well, what's that got to do with anything? Someone had to be created first. Well, not exactly. They could have been created at the same time. But what's interesting here, and what's important to recognize, is that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that this matter that man was created first was not just an incidental thing. It was God's declaration from the beginning that he was to have the leadership in the home. Number two, 
Not just was man created first, but the woman was created from the man. She wasn't just created separately from dust like Adam was. She was created from the man. And again, the Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 12 and tells us this was God's declaration of this structure in the home. There's another way that this structure of authority or of leadership in the home is stressed in the creation narrative. And that is the fact that Adam gave his wife her name. Both before the fall and after. Before the fall, she shall be called woman because she's taken from man. After the fall, calls her Eve because she's the mother of all living. He gives her her name. That is a function of authority. We find that throughout the Genesis narrative as well. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the light and the contrasting darkness. And the light he called, he named day. The darkness he named night. We read on that God creates the firmament and he created the surging depths of the, of the waters and he created the dry land and the firmament he named the heavens and the, dry, the surging waters he named the sea and the dry land he named the earth. This is a function of God's dominion, giving names. We find it in Genesis 2 with Adam exercising his dominion over the created order, naming the animals. It's a function of his leadership. We find it elsewhere in the, New Test- in the Old Testament as well. In Numbers chapter 32, the, when the Reubenites conquered the Amorites, first thing they do is change the name of the villages and the towns in the area to note their new control. Later, when Pharaoh Necho conquered Eliakim, first thing he does, changes his name to Jehoiakim. You find it in the book of Daniel. The Babylonians conquer Judah, and they carry Daniel and the three Hebrew children back to Babylon, give them new names. This is a function of parental authorities today. We give our children their names. We don't wait and ask them what they want to be called. And so Adam is created first. She is created from him. He gives her her name. And there's one other that just lies on the surface of the text, and that is in Genesis chapter 2. God identifies her as Adam's helpmeet, his helper. Now, that is not something that's said of the man. It's said of the woman. Her focus is to be him. Her reason for being is him. And this is a function of their companionship. And so before ever there was sin, from the very beginning, headship in the home was established. It is part of its created ideal. They are companions, they are equals, but they are not with identical roles. There's never an excuse for abusing the headship. And heavy responsibility is laid on the husband to be careful with that leadership, to love his wife as Christ loves the church, to be sacrificial and provide for her, and all of that. And post-Genesis chapter 3, there's an element of curse in it, and there's the competitive spirit that goes back and forth. And there's all of the sin mixed into it that makes it all the more difficult 
But still, the point is, from the very beginning of marriage, this companionship of equals involves distinctive roles. And all of that, then, sets us up for what in Genesis chapter 3 is such an awful tragedy. Instead of assisting her man to live faithfully under God, she led him away from God. Instead of companionship and support, there's isolation, there's independence, and even insubordination. Or she listens to the tempter rather than the instruction that she had been given from her husband. And then the very first recorded words from Adam's mouth after his sin are just shocking. God calls him into account, and Adam says, The woman, the woman which you gave me, she gave to me, and I ate. And you've got to think with all of this bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, companionship in the background, chapter 2, Adam, what happened to all that wonderful ideal of companionship and bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and one plus one equals one stuff? Where'd that go? And suddenly Adam, filled with sin himself, with all of that, there's something cruelly selfish that has entered the picture. And to save himself, he's willing to sacrifice her Rather than viewing her as his other self, he views her as the scapegoat. Someone else, someone that could be sacrificed. Rather than sacrificing for her, he's willing to sacrifice her. And this one who was earlier his highest joy on earth was now his scapegoat. And to save himself, he endangers his wife. The companionship is gone. Sin has ruined it. And rather than loving her as he loves himself, he selfishly views her as someone else that can take the rap in his place. Our expression today, he threw her under the bus. Did you know that the very first thing to go in marriage is companionship? Before ever there is legal divorce, there's mental divorce. Before ever there's legal divorce, there's this mental separation, viewing ourselves as someone else other than the one to whom we have been bound, and one plus one equals one in that kind of companionship. Before ever there's a formal separation, there's this failure to recognize your spouse as your own body, your own self, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And the way that works out very practically is, well, life gets busy and the responsibilities pile up and the job is demanding. And the kids, of course, require constant attention. And somehow in the shuffle of it all, companionship, gets marginalized and set aside. I remember reading, this is probably 30 years ago, reading in a book by Jay Adams, a famous counselor. I think it was in his excellent book on the home and family living. 
He gave some advice to parents. I thought it was just excellent, and it fits here so well. Ladies, he said, the very best way for you to be a good mother to your children is, first of all, be a good wife to their father. Men, the very best way for you to be a good father to your children is, first of all, be a good husband to their mother. That's the outworking of this passage. Companionship, recognizing that first of all in this marriage, first of all in this marriage is not the children. First of all is certainly not the job and other responsibilities. First of all in this marriage is our companionship, our friendship, the relationship that we have together. And this loss of companionship works its way out in all kinds of ways. Before ever there's a fight, she thinks, why should I have to be enslaved here at the home? Why can't I have my own life, my own life to live? Or he thinks, I still have my life. I still have my own enjoyments. Or he can come home from a days at work and completely ignore her. Because he needs his time. Or he comes home from a hard day at work. And because it's a hard day at work and he's been stressed, he comes home and he's cold and he's unsociable and he's grumpy and rudely silent. You've never seen that, I'm sure. And she says... I can play this game as well as he can. And he's thinking to himself, I see what she's doing. She can't beat me at this. And there's this growing spirit of competition rather than a oneness, a spirit of of competition, each jockeying for prominence, each determined to win this next argument each determined that after at the end of this argument, I'm going to stand taller than him or her. I'll show him. I'll show her. And then follow the digs and the jabs. And she's always willing to maneuver, to gain control, always trying to change him. And he is always willing to make her grovel. And both willing to say things in the heat of the moment that will inflict pain that lasts for years. I knew I shouldn't have married you. I've never really been happy with you. And often you think, do they mean it? Maybe not. Often they don't. It just meant it to hurt. And they color the past with the jaundiced eye of the present and the heat of the moment. And on it goes. And this beauty of the created ideal becomes so marred, we wonder whatever could have happened to it. Companionship? Yeah, I need it, but I also have an ego. For the price of a 
an ego trip. We lose our companionship and our greatest relationship on earth. And day after day, even if there's not fighting, day after day, there's no cultivated companionship and relationship of one plus one equals one, and it's not fleshed out. And day after day, they're living their own separate lives. And then one day, finally, when they're both about 50, the last child moves out of the nest, and they look across the breakfast table one day at a complete stranger. This is exactly one of the causes of midlife divorce. Here all along, they've given their attention to the kids, to the work, to the career. And they forgot to be friends. They forgot to be companions. To develop and cultivate that relationship. If only they had remembered to be companions and friends their last years and their later years would have been much happier and much more fulfilling. Well, all of this comes in on display in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve rebel. They run and they try to hide from God and graciously God comes to them just like God. That's the story of the Bible, God coming to us. Genesis 3.15, in pronouncing judgment on the tempter, he makes a promise. A champion's going to come. He's going to fix this mess. We keep reading in the book, and we find that champion is Jesus, who loved the church and gave himself for her. The very model of headship. He comes and out of love for his bride, he gives himself for her. All of her debts he takes to himself. All of her sins he makes his. All of her offenses he takes to his own account. And he goes to the cross and bears the punishment for his bride, the church, the very model of headship. And when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, as we have read, when he comes to give counsel on marriage, he doesn't just say, come on, guys, you can work this out. He doesn't just say, come on, guys, you've got to stay married. What he does is he takes us to Christian essentials, and he says, don't you know that your marriage is your greatest potential testimony for the gospel? Wives... Submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Reverence your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And your children ought to be able to see it at work in your home. You teach them the gospel. You try to evangelize them. And gradually it begins to dawn on them. My mom is so utterly devoted to my dad. And my dad, he gives himself even sacrificially to my mom. I get it. This is that gospel they've been telling me. They really believe it. As our marriages reflect that original ideal, think about it. We honor God 
We advance the gospel. And in the meantime, we ourselves are the happier for it. Amen. Let's pray.